You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. Special welcome to those of you who are joining us online and those of you who are visiting with us this morning. It is so good that we can be here together. We've got our last uh, message this morning in our We Don't Talk About series. Uh, We're going to be talking about food and alcohol and a few other things this morning. So if you want to just go ahead and open your Bible to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This topic this morning, food and alcohol, it's, uh, I actually had a hard time coming up with a title for this one because it's not entirely, I'm not going to talk about food and alcohol for the next 40 minutes. We're going to talk about that, but not just that. We're going to talk about them in the broader context of what we call Christian freedom. Christian freedom, those areas where the Bible gives us some instruction, but not like a blanket, you must do this, you must not do that. These are areas where Christians perhaps can disagree, or there's, you know, there's wisdom that's involved. We have to really think. It's not just black and white. So that's really what we're talking about. And so we can look to the Bible for not, not specific instructions on a particular way of doing things, but general principles and wisdom. So why talk about food and alcohol, eating and drinking at all? It's, it's not random. Um, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, maybe you've heard this verse before. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Everything. Even the most ordinary things, like eating and drinking. And that actually covers a bunch of territory in terms of what we spend our time doing. Um, There's actually statistics on this. Um, On average, how much time you spend eating and drinking. I don't know if you think about this, but the average Aussie, how much time they spend eating and drinking every single day? The average is 90 minutes. 90 minutes a day. Now, some, some of us, we eat and drink. When you're eating and drinking, you're very focused. That's all you're doing. And for the rest of us, um, you're multitasking. You're doing other things. You're working. You're watching Netflix, whatever you're doing. But 90 minutes a day, some form of eating and drinking. Um, so those 90 minutes add up to around 550 hours per year. And if you live to the average age of 82.9 years old, you will have spent a total of just over five of those years straight just eating and drinking. Now, according to Paul, you can use those 90 minutes per day, 550 hours per year, five years per lifetime, not just to keep yourself fed and hydrated, but to glorify God. Now, in case you missed last week's message, um, I don't remember what it was. Um, Here's essentially the summary. God has a claim on your body. He made it, and he has a good plan for your body. Your body tells a story of his adoption, of his love for you. And that is where we get the, the, that's the basis of what the Bible says about sex and marriage and friendship. And we also know for everyone in Christ, your body is being and will be fully redeemed, made whole. You will have a new body that's perfect when you see Jesus face to face. And so how you glorify God with your body now points to how you will glorify God with your body then. Before I jump into this text, I want to put some of us at ease about where we're going with this. I am not here, um, in, in case you, 
you know this, I'm a pastor, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a dietitian, uh, I'm not a counselor. And so I say that up front, um, just to, to know that I'm not here and the, to micromanage what you eat and don't eat and, and drink and don't drink. That's not the purpose of this message today. We, we have a lot of um, hang-ups in the church talking about these things. Um, the first, what, what, the first hang-up that we have is we think, oh, man, food and, food and drink is so basic. It's so unspiritual. Why, why do we talk about this at all? You know, we, we're like the Corinthians in chapter 6. Food's for the stomach, the stomach's for food. It's not really that important. As long as we're not, like, super greedy and we don't steal food from other people, then we should be right. Another hang-up we tend to have is that I think some of us in the sort of recess of our minds, we assume that the really spiritual thing to do is to like be to eat and drink like super simply, as minimalistic as possible, because God really doesn't like it when we enjoy ourselves. But the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You know, food and drink can be received with thanksgiving, received as gifts. Um, this is a little bit of my background in the church. I grew up Southern Baptist in the U.S., and so you may know, if you know anything about Southern Baptists, we don't drink. We don't drink alcohol. Um, had a children's Bible when I was a kid that talked about that time when Jesus went to a wedding and turned water into grape juice. I'm not kidding. It's actually in there. Um, so it's part of my own story, but then I married into a family of grape growers from McLaren Vale, and everything changed. Um, now, the third hang-up that we often have comes from that some of us have been taught really to be blunt, some really bad ways of reading the Bible. And so um, we, some of us can treat the Bible like a, a mine of truth that we dig around and find little nuggets of hidden wisdom that no one ever has seen before. And you find that if you've ever read a Christian book on dieting, pretty much falls into this category. Almost, I've, I've honestly have never seen a good one. Um, it leads us to some really good ideas. I don't know if you can get this in Australia, but when I was growing up, there's this thing. You can go to a health food store in the United States and buy this product called Ezekiel 4-9 Bread. You ever heard of it? Ezekiel 4-9 Bread. Let me tell you about it. It's a company in the U.S. They came across this verse, this kind of obscure verse in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And here's what it says. It says, also take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them in a single container and make them into bread for yourself. And they thought, aha, I bet if we come up with a recipe and make bread with these grains, we could make some, make some money. No, they actually had a good plan. They actually thought, you know, this is going to be good for people's health. And so they made this money. And, and the bread itself is actually pretty healthy. And if you like that kind of thing, it's, it tastes all right. I've had it before. Um, but the problem is, is that it has zero to do with Ezekiel chapter 4. Like nothing. And let me tell you why. Because if you know the context of Ezekiel chapter 4, I'm sure you all do, I'm sure you've read it in your devotions this morning, like Ezekiel chapter 4, that verse is in the, it's right in the middle of a judgment, what's called a judgment oracle. God is telling Ezekiel to make this bread. By the way, make it while you're lying on the, in the dirt on your side. And when you bake it, you're not going to bake it in an oven. You're going to bake it over a fire that is fueled by, I'm not making this up, is fueled by human waste. That's in the Bible. That's not in the product. They don't mention that on the, the, the outer wrapper of the bread because I don't think it would help their sales. Um, 
the, the, the thing is, is that's there in the Old Testament. It was meant to be a symbolic judgment on what, how God was going to judge his people and how they were suffering. And anyway, I won't go into that because that's not a point this morning. But this is how we sometimes misuse the Bible um, when it comes to things like food and alcohol. Because we're so desperate to find some guidance that we go and kind of find things, with, find wisdom that's not really there. The closest thing I've ever found in the Bible to specific advice on food and alcohol comes in 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, where Paul says this. He says to Timothy, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. It is wine, not grape juice. It's pretty obvious, though, that that is a specific piece of advice to one person in one situation who was getting sick. Um, and so it's not a general command. So what does the Bible say about food and alcohol beyond just glorify God when you eat and drink? That's a great question. I want us to unpack it for, uh, like from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a little bit in chapter 6 that we read last week, and then in chapter 10. Because two different times, Paul says this, and this is the basis of what we call, in general, Christian freedom. He says, everything is permissible. Now, if you remember, I told you last week, that was a bit of a, it was a quote that other people around him in the culture were saying. It was kind of like a hashtag. It was a line. It was passed around the wider culture, and people were saying, you know, your body is not that important. It's just physical stuff. The real you is what's on the inside. So you can eat whatever you want. You can drink whatever you want. You can sleep with whoever you want because it doesn't really matter. Eventually, your body's going to die and decay, and the real you is still there. And this thinking had crept into the church as well. We saw last week, though, that everything that we do with our bodies now matters to God. So we are free to eat and drink, but everything that we eat and everything we drink communicates what we believe about God. So how do we go and represent God well in areas where the Bible doesn't give us specific instructions? Christian freedom tells me, on the one hand, I am gloriously free from condemnation and guilt and shame, but then I'm also free to do something. I'm free to know God. I'm free to enjoy God. I'm free to invite others into a relationship with God. So I'm not free to do whatever I want for myself. I'm free then to serve and know God and serve others. This morning, I want to ask three questions um, that we can ask ourselves when we're trying to figure out whether something that we are doing or not doing, whether it glorifies God. How do we kind of know this? I'll tell you the questions up front, and then I'm going to show you where, they, where I get them from the Bible. So question number one is this. When you're testing to see if something you're doing glorifies God, what does this thing communicate about God? Question two how does this thing impact other people? And then question number three, how does this thing impact the work of the gospel? God, others, gospel. So we're gonna, I'm going to pray for us now, and then we'll, we'll jump into the text. So join me as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. I, I pray that as we read and think about and talk about this truth that doesn't change, that you would be shaping us, shaping our minds, shaping our desires, that we would not only know the things that are true, but that we would want the things that are true for ourselves and for others. So God, help me as I speak and help us as we listen uh, together. Um, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to start out. I'm just going to read two verses that we read last week from 1 Corinthians 6. So you can still keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, but this is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, Everything is permissible for me, 
but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. So, coming back to this today, because there's a connection to chapter 10. You'll notice I'm gonna, you're going to see the same sort of phrasing in chapter 10. But the principle here, in a culture, and, and I think ours is similar to the culture in Corinth, where physical things are often seen as disposable, okay? You can either beat your body into submission, like the ascetics did, because, again, your body is not really the real you. Or you can ignore your body, again, because the real you is on the inside. And Paul says everything is permissible or lawful, but not everything is helpful or beneficial. What does he mean? Well, two things are true. Number one, nothing that you can do saves you. When it comes to your salvation, your relationship with God, nothing that you can do or not do saves you. Nothing you put in your mouth, nothing you refuse to put in your mouth, nothing you um, can say or not say, nothing saves you. The faith that saves you is the faith that he gave you, the faith to recognize that once you were dead in your sins, and Jesus, based on what he did on the cross and on the empty tomb, has raised you to life, raised you with him, and joined you with him, and forgiven you, and cleansed you, and secured your place in his family. Now, imagine if I was to come to you and told you that something that you could do could undo what Jesus did. Like Jesus did all of that on the cross. He defeated death. But if you put something in, you put that thing in your mouth, or you do, or, or do it that too many times, that's going to undo everything. That would be anti-gospel. That would be bad news because the gospel sets you free from the law. You are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Therefore, everything, everything is permissible. Does it make sense? But the second thing he says, some things we can do as Christians are unhelpful. Why? Because even though nothing that you do can unsave you, everything that you do communicates something. Everything that we do communicates. Paul talks about certain things here that can master you. That what we do can become so important, so central, so habit-forming, so shaping, so impactful on others that if you were forced to give that thing up, whatever it is, it could be a, it could be a very, very significant thing. You know, there are things in life, you know, you think about when Jesus came to the rich young ruler. He had riches, he had power, he had status, he had comfort. None of those things are bad. Everything is permissible. None of those things are sinful in, of the, in themselves. But when Jesus came to him and said, I want you to give up these, everything that you have, sell to the poor, and then come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And he said he couldn't do it. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Because the wealth that he had mattered more to him in that moment than the desire and the call to follow Jesus. Now that, friends, is what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry is not just, if you think about, you know, back in ancient times when there were false gods that were made out of clay and, and stone and people would go and, and bow down to those things or leave gifts at the altar, that sort of thing. That, that is idol worship, 
But idolatry in the broadest sense is what Tim Keller says when we take a good thing, a good thing, and make it an ultimate thing. When we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, when we make it the center of our identity, the center of our desiring, the center of our doing, that's the sign of an idol in our lives. So think about the good things that we have. Good things like your family or the job that you have or your position in university or the country you're born in or sex or the hope of being married or a middle-class life of minimum pain. See, all of these things are good, but when they become the goals such that you cannot picture or imagine life without those things, they are ultimate for you. And why are they dangerous? Because when good things become ultimate things, they become compelling things. They become the things you cannot live without. They become the things that drive you to make decisions. They become habits that you can't quit, no matter who or what gets in the way. And the question that can shine a light on our hearts to see whether or not there are idols there is this. What does this thing that I love communicate about God? Does this lifestyle choice help me to know and enjoy God as ultimate and supreme and most worthy in my life? Or does it keep me from real relationship and real devotion? Like with the rich young ruler. So last week we talked about sexuality and how it's so easy for us to be compelled by what our bodies crave. Things like touch and attention and romance and physical pleasure, such that now our bodies no longer tell the story that they were designed to tell, that they were bought with the blood of King Jesus for his purpose and his glory, but rather we now exist to find pleasure and receive pleasure for ourselves, whatever the cost. It's so easy, you see, to be mastered by the things that we crave. It's hard to say no to those things. Well, let me, let me bring it back to food and alcohol for a minute. I want to uh, talk to you about uh, a meme. There's a meme that was created about 10 years ago, and it's the meme of the wine mom. I don't know if you've ever heard of this meme. I, I think the label itself is a bit sexist. I didn't come up with it, so don't blame me. Um, it's been floating around the internet for about 10 years or so. It's a reference to middle-class moms who post on social media about themselves drinking wine after a hard day of parenting. Now, I say it's sexist because I'm, there's tons of men who forever have been making jokes about drinking after work or on the weekend, and that's not, that hasn't become a meme. Um, but for some reason, moms drinking wine uh, is a meme. We don't automatically assume the worst of, of, of men who drink, but we, we tend to think with women that, oh, maybe that maybe she's a secret alcoholic. What's new with this, with this, these memes, are, is that these memes are meant to be self-deprecating, usually by the people that post them. Um, I know, you know, it's like communicate. I know this is a little bit naughty, but here I am. I'm hiding from my kids in the closet with my glass of rosé and now, I'm not bringing this up to condemn anyone. Um, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to have a glass of wine at night um, after your kids are in bed. We certainly do. Um, but I'll bring it up because I want to um, 
show you how the choices we make communicate to others. And we know this. That's why we sometimes post about our lifestyle choices. We post what we eat. We post what we wear. We post where we go on holiday. Because these things communicate. It helps shape us, who we are, our identity, to others. It tells people what we love. Tells people what we look forward to. Tells people what we're anxious about. So it's a fair question to ask. What do these things communicate about God? There's a reason that almost all the commands in the Bible that say no to drunkenness, say don't get drunk, don't be drunk with wine, all of these are grounded not in some sort of hatred for the body or hatred for pleasure. They are grounded in a concern for our spiritual health even more than in our physical health. Obviously, drinking to the point of addiction and alcoholism has a massive impact on our physical health. And there are many people who have struggled with that. But it also has a great impact on our spiritual health. So, for example, Ephesians 5, verse 18 says, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Or Proverbs verse 20, verse, or chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler. Whoever goes astray because of them is not wise. See, the emphasis here is on our living, on, on our spiritual health, even more so than our physical health. Drunkenness communicates a lot of things beyond just a possible addiction. It says, I'd rather have a beer buzz than the fruit of the Spirit. It says, I care more about a good time than a life poured out for His glory. And over-consuming alcohol, just like over-consuming food and any good thing, says that this good thing is now an ultimate thing for me. It's the thing I run to for comfort. It's where I escape for joy. This is what I look forward to. This is what I need to have a good time by myself or with friends. So if you had to choose, you know, between wine or, 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 or chocolate or high-speed internet or being married or living in Adelaide for the rest of your life or getting that dream job or, or, or whatever it is or, or being safe, if, if any of those things, if you had to give up any of those things in order to follow the call that God has placed on your life, would you do it? Could you do it? Could you imagine a life without any of those things? Because instead of clinging on to any one of those things as these little luxuries that we deserve, a sign of Christian maturity is, a, is, is what we can hold with an open hand. Can We can lay them at the feet of Jesus because he is better. He's better. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. Nothing. There's everything wrong with clinging on to nice things for dear life, so much so that we can't cling to Jesus. So what does this thing communicate about God? Second question, how does this thing impact others? I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 now, um, starting with this familiar refrain in verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. Now, this is pretty straightforward. There's no hidden meaning here. It's pretty, pretty plain. It's harder to live it out. So how do we glorify God in everything? How do we communicate that he is our treasure? 
the center of our affections, where we, what we look forward to, who we look forward to. Um, well, one of the ways is that we ensure that in everything we do, our aim is to build up, to encourage, to support, to honor the men and women around us who are impacted by the things that we do. There are very few things that we do that don't have an impact on other people. Even the things that culture will say are harmless. These guilty pleasures that, 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 are, that it's just, it's just completely private. Um, classic example of this is pornography. Culture will tell you that is just something that you do between you and no one else. And it doesn't harm anyone. But that's not true. Because we know this even from science, that pornography shapes our brains. It shapes the way we see people. It shapes the way that we experience physical intimacy with people. It is not a harmless, victimless sin. It's very serious. And so we ought to think, how does this thing that I'm doing impact other people? What's the connection then between the gospel and the impact our actions have on other people. We Christians are those who have been lifted up from the pit of death and slavery and condemnation to the heights of hope and righteousness and new life. So then we ought to be people who extend that same hand out to others in absolutely everything we do. People who have received love, love others. People who have received mercy, show mercy. So listen to the emphatic language of verse 24. It says, no one is to seek his own good but the good of the other person. Same language is in Philippians chapter 2, and Paul connects it directly to the life of Jesus. He says this. He says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. We don't do this to make God like us. We don't do this to earn his favor. We do this to show the world that this is how God loved us. This is how we imitate him. This is how we walk like Jesus. We humble ourselves. We take up the towel and we do the work of happy servants. So married people, let me ask this. In your marriage, do you actively seek the good of your spouse? Do you know what brings them joy and then you initiate to do those things. Parents, do you actively seek the good of your children? Or is your relationship with them all about making you look good as a parent? And I say this not as a slam because I've been a parent now for nearly 16 years and I have to admit to you that so much of the time parenting is about what is convenient for me. What makes me look good? What gets me the sleep that I want? You know, parents have of young kids, you, you know what it's like to, to lose sleep because of a baby that isn't sleeping. Um, and that's a sacrifice, I think, that prepares you for when kids get older and you're going to lose um, not just sleep, but perhaps opportunities, privacy, control, disposable income. For the good of your teenage children, for the good of your adult children, the moments that will impact your kids for eternity are probably not the nice family pictures and the moments you put on Instagram, although those are really good. Far more impactful for eternity will be those moments in your bedroom or wherever you go to cry out to the Lord for your kids. 
The good news is that we can have the same kind of impact on other people's kids too. People that we bring before the Lord. Um, who are the people that you are discipling that you would cry out to God for? Li- I mean literally. I, don't, I'm not, I mean literally cry out to God for. What are their names? What are you praying? If, if everything that you're praying for those people came to pass tomorrow, what would the world look like? In parenting, in friendship, and just do, doing life with other people, we glorify God by doing it for the good of others. So let me just say a brief thing about what I mean by good of others. What do we mean by good? Sometimes what is good, what is best for others, is not going to be what that person perceives as good. And I think we know this intuitively. Sometimes it's the the opposite. What is good is not going to be received as good. Um, So if I don't perceive your actions as good, I think in our culture often you say, well, they're not good. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we need to lovingly, graciously, humbly say things to others that they don't want to hear. Things like, no, I'm sorry, I can't join you in that. Or, yes, this is what the Bible says. This is for your good, even though you don't see it. Or things like, I love you and I'm here for you always. But unless you repent, unless you turn back to Jesus, your soul is in mortal danger. We, we don't judge what is or isn't good for another person by how they might receive it from us but only in light of what the Lord says, only in light of his word, what scripture says. And that brings us to the last question. How does this thing that we're going to do or not do impact the work of the gospel? I'm going to read the rest of 1 Corinthians 10 here to you, starting in verse 27. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I, don't mean, I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized? Because of something for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. So Paul turns his attention here away from the way we act toward everyone to a specific group of people here, namely people who are unbelievers or people perhaps who are very, very new believers. Everything is permissible, again, but how does the way we act or not act impact the work of the gospel among those who don't yet believe? Paul talks about the impact here of our actions on other people's conscience. What does he mean? Let me tell you about the specific case he's talking about here. He's talking about whether or not to eat certain food, specifically food that had been offered to a false god, food that had been dedicated to the worship of a false god, an idol. So he says, if an unbeliever invites you out into their own home and they put food, including meat and all the good stuff on the table, he says, just eat it and be thankful for the sake of conscience. What's he mean? In other words, you don't need to offend your unbelieving neighbor by saying, no, 
that might make me unclean. That was, that was like the super religious Pharisee kind of way of doing things. He's like, no, don't do that. You can receive that food with thanksgiving. You can be willfully ignorant of where it come, came from. But then in verse 28, he says, if your host tells you that the meat did in fact come from an idol uh, sacrifice, then don't eat it. Again, not because the meat is unclean or contaminated or it's a sin. He says you're free to eat it, except when by eating it, you might have a negative effect or an impact on someone else, particularly an unbeliever. He says, not to, he says this is not to offend the person, don't eat it. Paul hammers this home in verses 32 and 33. He says, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they might be saved. I think this is kind of a hard word because we, we talk about doing things to please others as being bad. And of course we can be compelled and sort of like really overly anxious about what others might think and become paralyzed. But here he says we ought to consider how the impact that our actions have on others, particularly if that person is not yet a believer. Um, this idea that what I say, the words that come out of my mouth, what I put into my mouth, uh, the entertainment that I watch, the things I post on social media, that all of those things can communicate, all of those things can have an impact on other people, and I ought to be wise and careful in that. It's almost mind-blowing, because it really goes against, I think, the sort of grain of our culture today. I want to give you an example from the mission field. When we lived in Asia, um, the team of gospel workers that we were part of um, had the aim to see churches planted uh, in, a, in an unreached Muslim suburb of about 80,000 people in our city that had never seen a church, ever. It was that community was more than 1,000 years old, and there had never been a church there. Um, in this area, our Muslim neighbors were super serious about not eating pork, not eating meat that had been contaminated in any way. Um, they would only buy from Muslim-approved butchers and eat at Muslim-approved restaurants that could guarantee that the beef and the lamb was clean and pure. So we decided, before we ever moved there, that we would purchase all new dishes and, and cutlery and servingware in our home. And we decided that we would only shop at the places where our neighbors shopped and eat where our neighbors ate. Why? Because that way they would feel much more comfortable coming into our home and eating with us. Not because eating pork is a sin, clearly not, but for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of their conscience, for the sake of having potentially an opportunity to share with them the life-changing message of Jesus, gladly would we give up bacon and pepperoni until, until Jesus comes back, because that is what is more significant. To see people who are lost and headed for an eternity in hell have the opportunity to hear the message of life and hope and salvation. See, our right to eat what we want to eat all the time is nothing compared to their need to see and know Jesus. This is basic stuff. We're not heroic in that at all. You know, we had friends working in similar neighborhoods who, you know, neighborhoods among people that were, where, where domestic violence was a huge problem. And these were friends that we had that would open up their homes. They had this open-door policy, and they'd have women that would come 1 a.m., 2 a.m., knock on the door. They had young kids, 
and they would lose sleep. And they say, my right to sleep pales in comparison to the need these women have for hope and help and, and to hear potentially the message of Jesus. Our right to privacy. How tightly do we hold those things? See, none of, this, none of this is about earning favor with God. We're talking about this is Christian behavior. This is the work. Uh, you, the work of Christ is enough for our salvation. But this is how we help people understand what the work of Christ actually looks like. You don't earn one ounce of merit by abstaining or partaking in anything. But when you lay aside your rights to food and, and drink and, and sleep and, and privacy and health and safety and all those things that others might benefit, that others might be saved, that is when Jesus is made big. That is when the world knows that he is your treasure. That is what it means to live for his glory. Paul says this in Galatians 5.13. He says, use your freedom. You have freedom. Everything's permissible. But use your freedom, not as an opportunity to indulge your flesh, not for yourself. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another through love. Open tables, open homes, open hands, open lives laid bare so that others might know King Jesus until his glory is shining in every neighborhood on earth. So practically speaking, how, how do I know this thing glorifies God, this thing I want to do? Well, before posting that thing on social media, before cracking that joke or cracking open that bottle, before launching into that spiel about the latest diet craze, come back to these questions. What is, this, what, is what I'm about to communicate about God? How does it impact others? And how does it impact the work of the gospel to bring men and women from every nation into saving faith in Jesus and part of his eternal family? I want to end today with just a few lines from a book that was assigned reading for us when we lived in Asia. Um, it was written over 80 years ago uh, by a single lady uh, who was called as a missionary to uh, rural China. Um, she was part of the China Inland Mission. If you've ever read anything by um, Hudson Taylor, he founded that organization. It's called OMF today. Thousands, if not millions of people around the world, or sorry, uh, million, thousands, if not millions of people will be around the throne of King Jesus because of the work of Hudson Taylor and this band of brothers and sisters. And this lady's name is Mabel Williamson, and she wrote this book simply titled, Have We No Rights? And it, it really cuts to the heart of, I think, where, where we're at today. He, she writes this, he, meaning Jesus, had no rights. He had no right to a soft bed and a well-laid table, no right to a home of his own, a place where his own pleasure might be sought, no right to choose pleasant, congenial companions, those who could understand him and sympathize with him, no right to shrink away um, from filth and sin, to pull garments closer around him and turn aside to walk in cleaner paths, no right to be understood and appreciated, no, not by those upon whom he had poured out a double portion of his love, his only right was to silently endure shame, spitting, blows, to take his place as a sinner at the dock, to bear my sins in anguish on the cross. He had no rights. And I? A right to the comforts of life? No. But a right to the love of God for my pillow. A right to physical safety? No. But a right to the security of being in his will? A right to love and sympathy from those around me? No, but a right to the friendship of the one who understands me better than I understand myself. 
a right to be a leader among men? No. But the right to be led by the one to whom I have given my all, led as a little child with its hand in the hand of its father. A right to a home dear one, and dear ones? No. Not necessarily. But a right to dwell in the heart of God. A right to myself? No. But oh, I have a right to Christ. All that he takes, I will give. All that he gives, I will take. He is my only right. He, the one before which all other rights fade into nothingness, I have full right to him. Oh, may he have full right of me. Friends, those are the words of a woman who treasures Jesus and is now with him in his presence and glory. Because the world that we live in is fleeting. It is passing away. The prize is coming sooner than you think. Doesn't matter how young or old you are, soon, soon he's coming. The gospel is victory. So do you count yourself as a brother or a sister of, of this sister? Do you hunger and thirst for the food that lasts forever and the fruit of righteousness? See, may we be men and women who rise above the mundane, not because we're too good for it and too pure or too this and that and not to condemn, but may we rise above the trivial things of life so that we are high enough and useful enough to be poured out for his glory and for the good of all people and for the joy of all people around us, starting with the people in this very room. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that because, Jesus, you did not cling on to life and comfort as your right, we can be brought in. We can be saved. You descended in humility. You came down. You took on the form of a servant that we might be saved that we might be lifted up, made alive, lifted to a place of honor, not a place that we earned or deserved in any way at all, but a place that you won and earned for us. God, would we be humble and willing to be poured out like you. Thank you for the good gifts of life. Thank you for the food that we have. Thank you for the drink that we have. Thank you for friendships and homes and warm clothing and and, and, and vehicles and jobs and relationships and all of those good things. We celebrate and thank you. But Lord, help us never to allow any of those good things to replace you as our ultimate treasure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.